Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. And it's that time again for another episode of In the Landscape. Thank you all for joining us for another week of a landscape design care general interest topic. We're excited to bring you the third in our series, our first attempt at a series, I guess, Mm -hmm. or at least a consecutive series because we've done, you know, the right plant in the right place, perennials, shrubs, trees. But this one, we thought we'd record sort of back to back and see if we could explore kind of the compare and contrast of the different basic kind of broadest category of living environment, Mm -hmm. the uh, rural, (laughs) urban, and suburban. And I am one of your hosts. My name is Kate Sadler. And with me in studio is my co-host. Charles Sadler. Hi, Charles. So we're excited if you're, if you're joining us for the very first time, um, we encourage you to go back and listen. Um, hopefully there are back episodes in our back catalog that will touch on a, a design topic of interest for you. And if you've followed us through this journey, thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in each week. <laughs> Almost each week, we try to be very consistent about recording. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, it's a challenge. But yeah, so busy week, even though we're here, I guess, on a a holiday weekend kind of recording and getting this episode bundled and ready to go. It's like the mark of end of summer in the U.S. Yes, yes. It's Labor Day weekend. Memorial Day is, it begins sort of where you start wearing your seersuckers or your white (laughs) pants. white, yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's like old-fashioned traditions. Yeah. And of course, somewhat tied to the seasons, especially if you're living in the Northeast or Midwest, anywhere that starts to get cold this time of year, you really begin to feel it. Oh, right. Some of us, I mean, California is hitting record heat right now. (laughs) There was somebody, a fellow horticulturalist was posting, I think they're in France, they're having their first uh, wood fire, like first indoor fire of the year. Yeah. So we're a bit, we're a ways away from that. We're still, we still have the air conditioner on here in Texas. I've been really thrilled that our AC is solar. No, wind powered. Duh, it's Texas. Wind powered here. There's a lot of wind in Texas. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> There's almost always a prevailing wind. Yeah. In Every time southern I think Texas. about how much we run the air conditioner, I'm like, well, it's renewable. So there, there, there's that. What else? Um, we're starting to roll our classes back out. We were very excited to get accredited, to be developing them. You've taught some synchronous classes that have been very successful. On a range of topics, you know, we have some that are that are design related, some that are pruning related, which so it, there's some for everyone and some that are just straight science, botany, um, sort of ecology. Horticulture. Yes. Plant selection. Yes. And so we kind of <laughs> ran into, as maybe has happened in other areas of our lives these days, production schedule situation, working from home and having the team kind of scattered and but we, we're back on track. We're getting those back up on the website. So we're feel finding free. like no, no efficiencies too. I think different. How can we move things forward? Well, you certainly get better at something the more you do it too. So my background is, is a pretty high level of educational wherewithal. So <laughs> it's like the, the, uh, the knowledge is there, but then implementing is a whole other as a whole other thing, as we kind of know from the design world and stuff. So anyway, for anybody who was like confused, um, they may have seen a post or, or heard us mention it on the show. Those, those are coming out. They uh, are typically asynchronous, so you can take them at your own pace. But we have students responding with, you know, one 
design assignment is to submit your plant palette so that you can get feedback. And we're seeing plant palettes come in from other regions. It's great because we can give the design feedback and then do our sort of due diligence to kind of understand the ecology of the place. And that's been a lot of fun. Right. It's fun to research. Yeah. So feel free to check that out. And heading into our fall season. It's it's nice having projects kind of all over the country. I know it's kind of hurry up and get stuff planted in the Northeast for a lot of our, of the United States, of course, for a lot of our clients up there. Um, and, and for then, pruning too, we're getting, like a big part of our practice is pruning gardens, supervising, consulting, training other people how to prune. Mm-hmm. So for ornamental plants, like evergreen plants, September's the window in the Northeast, yeah. or it could be the same in the Midwest or Pacific Northwest, probably. If you prune, you have like some of a, of a holly hedge, let's say. If you do that after September, the act of pruning encourages new growth, and then the new growth can get frost burn. Right. So it's generally, like I use the guideline, the latest you ought to prune is about two months before your frost. Mm, that's good. So in Texas, there's not always a frost, but it's about the middle of December. Mm. And so the middle of October is two months before that. So there that's sort go. of the cutoff. And so we do a fair amount of research. So when we're implementing large-scale pruning projects, sometimes it's thousands of plants or you know, hundreds of feet of hedges that we're conservative. That doesn't cause a problem. All right. So even though this episode is on a totally different topic for pruning, we almost can't let an opportunity pass if it means a chance to kind of talk about or educate about what's good for plants and kind of reflect on our own learning experiences. I think that's what gives us the enthusiasm to do the podcast and to to start the classes and to be engaging in that way, write, write articles and things like that is this sort of interconnectedness of learning new things and then sharing those new things. So, mm-hmm. so something to think about. Uh, we do have some pruning back episodes if you want to go back and listen. And of course we are, it's, we have an awareness of our listeners from all over the world But of course, our perspective is kind of bound by the geography that we've had a chance to live and work in. So we always welcome, you know, the the intricacies and and insights that our listeners have if they come from a different region and things have to be done differently somewhere for for a specific region. Um, There's like water requirements. I mean, totally. many parts of the world, there's water shortages. Mm -hmm. And so that definitely trickles down to food production, drinking water. Uh water, sanitary water, and then ornamental gardens, I mean, are, can be one of the larger uses of water. Right, yeah. So, so being smart about that. So we, what, we, what we suggest, we, have, we interact with that a little bit, but it's not a dominant theme in our landscape design. Exactly, yeah, that's a good point, yeah. So if we talk a lot about the lushness of the Houston <laughs> landscape, uh, forgive us, uh, we sometimes get inundated with water here. So it really is a... Water is actually a problem. It's like when yeah. there's... So much water that there's flooding. (laughs) Well, and kind of along, I mean, I don't know if this is an elegant segue or not, but sort of along those lines, one of the reasons we decided to do this little series has to do with, you know, we're just, I think both of us are the kinds of people who are kind of enthusiastic about a, a variety of different things. And so it's a variety of different spaces that we sort of get enamored of. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) one minute we're talking about buying a house in the country and trying to start a farm and a nursery. And then the next minute, you know, we're like, well, but (laughs) 
maybe we should be closer to the art scene and the museums of, of the of the city. And all the, like, like the diverse cultural traditions in the city. Yeah. And I think we've always grown up, I mean, I know I, so far the three regions I've lived in, so the San Francisco Bay Area, the New York Metro. City, yeah, metropolitan area, and then now Houston has that really special mix of vibrant city center and then sort of ringed by nicely developed suburbs and then out into really gorgeous kind of rural communities. And then if you're really lucky and can get out just a little further, then there's often those really beautiful wild spaces that we like. Um, so we keep exploring those more while we're, we're here in Texas. So we've worked our way through the rural and the suburban, and now we're talking about the urban environment and considerations for landscape design there. And we certainly, it's, a, it's a, an environment with which we're both familiar as former residents of New York City. Mm-hmm. I lived in Manhattan, you lived in Brooklyn, and that was pure, like, <laughs> I was in a sixth floor walk-up, <laughs> which... <laughs> None of them brownstones. I both. was in very good shape at the time. <laughs> <laughs> you see, there's so much walking. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, was great. too. Yeah. We were reflecting on that city life. To me, good cities are, are very pedestrian-friendly. And so New York City was a great pedestrian city. Absolutely. When I had family visit that were not, that lived in smaller cities, I mean, people have sort of walking shock, you know? Oh, where, yeah. Where yeah. in my head I'd say, oh, well, it's like the High Line's a popular destination. Mm-hmm. And so that is on the far west side. That is hard to get to. It's, yeah. So subsequent visits we've driven in when we lived in the suburb and park and then yeah. walked. It could still walk for a couple of hours, but yeah, to get from like midtown to the High Line, I mean, a bus is or a taxi is not that fast. It's not much faster than walking. And it's a hike. I mean, it's because Manhattan, the, the blocks are wide. Mm-hmm. There may be two or three west. times as wide. Yeah. Maybe even four times as wide. Once you get to the far west. Yeah. As opposed to the oh, north-south. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, no. I, I experienced the same thing. I would often try to, like, calculate the route that would be, like, the least amount of walking. I'd be like, okay, well, we'll take the short route. And every time I annoyed my visitors, <laughs> my guests, because it would be... It would be too far. So you're right. The the walking to the subway and from the subway and then doing your walking destination, which is like right. walking through a park. I mean, you know, it was not uncommon to get easily the 10,000 steps they recommend. To walk for, it's I mean, hours and hours, really. Yeah. So walkability, definitely. But some of these things are not, I mean, we did talk about how the suburban landscape is often like all programmed, like it's all designed with the program in mind. And so the urban landscape is not necessarily, well, it doesn't always have the same intentionality or the intention is like really based on the part of the city that you're in and the agenda that has kind of like gone into shaping it. Like Soho or Lower Manhattan. or Which can change over time for sure. So it's like, it was a single program like processing meat or or textiles Mm -hmm. or import-export. And so now there's people living there. So some of those areas where the program has changed, now now they're very trendy. Mm-hmm. If you notice, like the three ones I just mentioned, they I don't believe they have large green spaces. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all built out. Right. So there's small parks, there's beautiful street trees. They've the city's creatively used 
intersections where instead of being paving, it's like a triangle, triangle, <laughs> like a triangular park. There was a whole green streets movement where they tried to, to insert parks in those sort of throwaway spaces. Well, kind of like some of those planned suburbs that we had talked about, where it was like the, the little triangular oh, parks right. were developed uh, maybe more organically at the time. And it was just an afterthought in some of the urban spaces. I mean, there does certainly seem to be a lot of sort of renewal projects and, and a big emphasis on accessibility in public spaces that mm-hmm. um, you know, <laughs> there are, I can't think of the name of the park. Well, I don't want to get it wrong. I think I know what it is. But the parks in New York where you need like a key to go in. Oh, right. Um, was it Murray was Hill? It Gramercy? Gramercy. Right? Oh, my Some gosh. Of those. New Yorkers, don't be mad. <laughs> I never actually got to go in. So maybe that's why I don't remember. So that was like old-fashioned. It was houses that ringed the mm-hmm. public square. Had a, If you were a resident, you, you could use the park. If you didn't, you couldn't. Which is not unsimilar to some suburban parks I've been to where it's like certain facilities are definitely for residents only. I mean, that, that is certainly right. a, a possibility. And so seeing all of these great public spaces, I mean, especially in a, a city like New York, but you recently had an experience with some of the parks in Houston as well. And it's not, so it's not an entirely new concept because Central Park has been around for a long time. And some of the parks in Chicago that you've talked about, and maybe there's additional efforts to kind of expand them or or adapt them to new uses. But the the public park is a great is just a great resource in some of our great cities. Right. You know, a contrast to the private parks of Manhattan would be Philadelphia, which has mm. the, these squares, these green squares that are. I'm guessing it's Ben Franklin that was the designer. It goes, you know, it's very historic. Those are completely public. There's more maintenance. So when it's public, there needs to be infrastructure and an endowment more or less to maintain it because it's because the things get worn out and trash. And so it's all sort of part of the public decision. How is this going to be used? Mm-hmm. And so my son and I did an outing to Herman Park, which is one of the main green spaces in urban Houston. There's Memorial Park and Herman Park. Those are the ones that I know that are very large, hundreds or, th- or a thousand acres. So Herman Park, I had studied it, and we may have driven by it, but we really dove in, uh, literally. You know, the, it's laid out. Classicism is definitely part of it. There's alleys, traffic circulars, fountains, obelisks, lots of benches. It was. It felt like some of the best parts of other cities I've been to in the U.S. and in, and in Europe, too. You know, mm-hmm. And it was very well programmed. There's a zoo. My son and I, who's a toddler, went on. There's a, a railroad, like a tram, which, you could, which went for maybe a few miles. It was like a mm-hmm. 20-minute ride. It's adjacent to Rice University that is really gorgeous. Like It reminded me of Stanford with the clay-tiled roofs. Mm-hmm. And the railroad went through the park, and it went adjacent to, to Rice. There's a Japanese garden. There were pedal boats. There were some restaurants. I think I think the restaurants might have been shut down. So there, but there was food you could food carts. Now you were able to drive in and park relatively easily. Is it did it feel like it was connected to the city? So I mean, I guess if it's right near a college campus, you could consider it accessible to the students that are there, but what about the residents in the area? Did it feel like it was well-connected? Uh, good question. 
It did. I mean, it's, it's part of, it's adjacent to the museum district. So that was, there's also, I'm guessing by looking at maps here, like multifamily housing, dense, dense urban housing that's right nearby. I would guess that, that, there, that there's a bus system that, would, that could get you. There was ample parking. It was, you know, socially diverse group. Of, it was all walks of life, you know, family, single people, older people running, biking. There were people, you know, Tai Chi group, yoga. Uh, yeah, the multi-generational-ism, <laughs> multi-generational-ism of, of cities and city parks is often a nice benefit, I think, to a community that you have, like, the opportunity to just gather on, on multiple levels, mm-hmm. like whether it's for a family picnic or just, just something about walking through. And I believe me, I am an introvert. <laughs> I don't, you wouldn't think I would like people in the numbers that they feature in New York city, but there's something about, I don't know, the interaction of being around people in, in a pleasant environment but not having to interact with them. I don't, right. know. I don't mean to be sound like a crabby person, but um, no, no, we experienced yeah, but there's that. something really nice about that. We sat on a bench. There was a, Houston's all about water. So mm. these well-designed parks, there's ponds, streams, fountains, mm-hmm. boating. It's like, it's, and that was the case here. We sat, there was a grove of bald cypress. There were dwarf wax myrtle under them. So it was shady. It was a, like a, Decomposed granite, I think that's used a lot in the parks here. So it's like a gritty gravel. And then an expansive pond, people were boating. Mm-hmm. So we, you feel like a part of the community and there's almost no demands on you. I mean, yeah. if you wanted to have a conversation with your neighbor on a bench, you could. What it makes me think of too is for people that are single people, younger people, I guess people at any age, older people, elderly, cities can be very friendly. Because mm-hmm. you can visit a park, and there's with the suburbs, it that could be the case. But I mean, a single person jogging in the suburbs or in a park, there'd be a lot of other people like you, right? Or right. A, like, a, or an older person. There were older people sitting on a bench reading a book, or people playing checkers. Mm-hmm. So cities, that may be a strength of cities that there is social interactions available, mm-hmm. and just sitting on a bench, being part of the community is available where in the suburbs if you that's sort of rare to like in my experience mm-hmm. it's possible but but you might be the only person in the park jogging or sitting on a bench well and we're certainly not sociologists we're um you know we're in the landscape design profession but these are the questions that one thinks of if they're going into you know landscape design on the civic scale mm-hmm. or even um you know part of the theme of this is if if potentially you're facing a move to a region that's a little different maybe following a job or something and just knowing what what the program might be in a way that could be appealing um even if you're thinking like oh cities busy taxis buses you know dense loud <laughs> no there's a there's there is Thanks to landscape design, there are these respites or or activities to engage in that that can happen all over a, a well planned kind of program for a city. Right, this Herman Park, the flow was very good, mm. and you could. I mean, it's been uh, there was a plaque, and it, so I'm thinking it's the park was well over a hundred years. Maybe I think it's from the 1800s. There's mm-hmm. parts of it. Well, I could be wrong, but something led me to believe that. So. 
there's been all these iterations of different designers, landscape architects, planners, but the flow, it was very unified. Mm. It didn't feel, you know, from a Japanese garden to a formal, like a European style alley with a fountain. And it was seamless. It wasn't jarring. Mm -hmm. And the user experience, there was good signage, benches. It was very, I, I was impressed. The, what struck me, this civic planning and civic parks, I mean, it's landscape architecture and planning, hopefully at the highest level. Mm -hmm. And the scale was beautiful, that it was like the right scale. Mm -hmm. And in some of these suburban developments, it's also very beautiful. It's, it's a park for that community. It's not a park mm -hmm. for the whole community. Right. And so the, the public, this sort of massive institutional scale of some of these parks, instead of being alienating, it's like gorgeous. It's just, when you look, there'll be a group of benches, it'll be four long benches. It's mm -hmm. very welcoming. It's like the right scale. It's interesting because I'm thinking of, I mean, I love Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, but it does feel a little bit like a hodgepodge. Like there are some areas, actually, they did a whole renovation of like the Cal Academy of Sciences and the DeYoung Museum. So there really was a huge investment in that park to kind of, well, I'm not going to say improve upon it because it really is a special place, but maybe just further develop it and, and the resources there. But there, I think of it as almost like these distinctive sections in a way that's a little different from Central Park, the way you can kind of just wend your way all the way from one far corner to the mm. other. You know, cars, there is a lot of through traffic there and and you do see the cars quite a bit in a way that I don't think you do oh. as much in Central Park. And this is just based on my most recent memory of the park, which is now getting to be several years old. So it may well have changed. But the thought of getting to the Japanese garden and then the botanical garden, I think, is like kind of adjacent to it. Yeah, the flow, just having tried to get to the different parts, um, I think is a little a little less organic than what you're describing. It's like very subtle it, yeah. when it doesn't work. Like a, if you have people have electricity in your house, of course. I mean, imagine if it didn't work in every room, if mm. you had different outlets in every room. Like you have like a, a French outlet in this room and you have a German outlet in this room with and then you have an American out. That would that'd be ridiculous. Yeah. And that's what some of these parks, it's not their sort of big D design where it's the architect or it's the wow landscape architecture, mm -hmm. which has its place. But some of this planning and wayfinding and user experience, it's like, it's quite humble. When it works well, you don't notice it. When mm -hmm. it doesn't work well, it feels like, oh, that's like 1880s. This is like 1980s it can detract from the user experience. Yeah, it just makes me curious to know more about the history of the design of that park. I mean, there are elements, believe me, that are just absolutely stunning. It's a tremendous resource. <laughs> I don't mean to denigrate Golden Gate Park. The only thing that I was thinking of based on this conversation is that sense of flow, which really it's like right. either, you know, I mean, was there a master plan to begin with? And that sort of applies on any scale to the way we develop our own yards, because mm -hmm. it's this idea that like, well, I'll take on the project of this little section, this bed needs some up upkeep or something. And then we get into that kind of hodgepodgey use of the space. It may look aesthetically really pleasing in the ways that we have kind of updated the design, but that overall, like, what is the program? How are people going to use this? What are the views before you start, like, breaking ground? Or, you know, you can kind of, it's so easy to run into that, 
that like whoops, it's a bit of a Frankenstein. <laughs> the materials here. too. I really try yeah. to think: can this material be replicated? Like when you need in the U.S., it's like ADA accessibility, the handicap accessibility. So there's maybe a beautiful material, but can you use that everywhere? Mm. And having a, a stroller, there's it's. I would imagine it's similar to a wheelchair or a, a, like a powered scooter. At this Herman Park, there were steps in areas. Mm. Now, there, were, there was almost always a ramp element, but sometimes it was like inconvenient. It was not, some of my graduate school professors, I remember them saying that, that designing for all users and some of those people, people of varying mobilities, mm-hmm. that you should start there, mm-hmm. not to say I'm going to do a beautiful design. Oh, and now we need people with like strollers. And uh, so in some of these parks, you do see that. You can see that it was, it's great that they made amendments to it. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, tearing it down and rebuilding it, that's, that can be very impractical. But when it is a new construction to really starting from that level, because mm-hmm. even like a two inch curb, well, if I'm pushing our son and you don't notice it, now, when you're walking, you probably wouldn't even, might not even notice that. In Houston, there's often these two-inch curbs for water. So from like from our driveway to our garage, there's like a two-inch lip. Well, that um, Emancipation Park was newer construction. And I don't recall going over any stairs. You're right. Necessarily. There, there, was, were, uh, there was like a, there was a sunken playground. There were bridges. Yeah, I have to. I mean, I can't say for a hundred percent sure. It was very seamless, but it right. did seem somewhat seamless, and that's with a toddler who's you know moving at a different pace. And there was great changes too. Yeah, so that that's like nice. good design. It's mm-hmm. so seamless. Well, okay, so you know we've talked about it's interesting because in the rural landscape we really focused on like what are you going to do with your property. And then, of course, in the suburban landscape, it's it's like that, but on a smaller scale. And then we talked a little about you know, the designed community, because that's a part of it. And now the balance of our episode has almost been on the designed community because the home (laughs) property tends to be somewhat small. And of course, if if you can afford a townhome and have some, or even a detached home, depending on which urban environment you're in, there may be some room for gardening. Um, Mm -hmm. We've talked about small spaces before, and even indoor gardening, which we've talked about with regard to apartments. Anything to mention for the, the, the person who's gardening in their smaller property space or even recommendations for how we inter- interface with our city planners in terms of our own streetscape? Oh, well, street trees are a big part of, of a city landscape. And so in some communities, you can request a street tree if maybe one died in front of where you live or there is not one. Well, and those trees, I mean, you could talk, I'm sure, more about this, but they have to be hardy to withstand the conditions of a city, but nothing really beats having street trees. I mean, they help with the the temperature, they help filter pollution, I, I think. Right, they correct. may help if you've if you really thought through how they're embedded in the sidewalk, I think you can make adjustments for things like runoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other benefits I might be missing? Like <laughs> uh, the, the like the social. I mean, it's it's social spaces that feel safe have street trees. Is my experience. Mm. Like, like the research shows that too. Like areas where there's more crime, there it's there's like heat island. It's hotter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's often not street trees. So the 
the New York City street tree, you know, uh, leaders, when they started that that million tree program under Mayor Bloomberg, it was request based. So mm. if you, you request, I'd like a tree in front of my house. I'm in Mars Hills in Queens. And so they thought that's great. We're putting trees where people want them. There were underserved neighborhoods where people were not asking for them, but there was a dearth of trees. Mm-hmm. So then they they flipped it and it was need-based. And so that made a big difference, putting trees. I mean, there's some of these areas where there is more crime. There are less street trees. There's higher incidence of asthma and all, and all kinds of other health issues. So these street trees, really, they really do make a difference. In cities like Baltimore, I've gone to great urban and street tree conferences there, and they have a fantastic uh, street tree program where there's young people in the community are brought in and employed and educated. And Well, and you, you've pointed out that there's even a special term for this concept of almost foresting our cities. Oh, right. Uh, I mean, it used to be urban forestry. So if you're a forester, you think of, so a more contemporary term is is uh, community forestry. And so what that means is it can, it means multiple things, but it's all the trees in a city are part of a community of trees. Mm -hmm. So you have like a London plane tree in front of your house and there's a small park and that has crab apple trees and, and uh, sweet gums and uh, sycamores. So it's, it's all those trees are part of the community. And then it's up really to the whole community to help support that too, for those to succeed. And I've been seeing, it's so interesting. There's now, um, again, it's just a, like maybe a headline or a, or a short article that I read about this idea that trees can produce food. And if you think about fruits and veggies, they can produce highly nutrient food. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there there could even be, as there is kind of a, a resurgence in city-based local farming, there could be a resurgence in almost like city-based foraging, that if we were choosing to plant, we think, and of course, it's not that fruit trees grow everywhere or easily, but even something like um, my little sister and I, when we were little, there were the trees that they may have been crab apples, but they almost looked like little cherries kind of. And those were very popular. I don't want to say we stole them off of someone's tree. I don't think we were old enough yet to kind of understand that perhaps those belong to someone else. I'd like to think because mm-hmm. it was early elementary school. And now I'm narrating it. I'm thinking, uh-oh. Um, you, don't wanna, you do not want to take someone else's fruit. That's no good. But if we knew that these were almost like urban supported orchards. Right. And people were invited to collect fruit for a season. Like that, that um, is happening. Kind of special. I think it's Portland, Oregon. And there's other cities where that is occurring. It's mm-hmm. like, why not have the plants? Oak trees are, are so beneficial because the flowers and the, and the acorns are food for animals. Mm-hmm. And actually, indigenous cultures used to make, I used to used to subsist on that also, mm-hmm. making flour from acorns and mm-hmm. all kinds of other products. So there is that. It's just the, maybe like the early days of of urban forestry where where you can eat the fruits from the trees. But it makes sense. I mean, there has to be some planning because fruits can make a mess. But mm-hmm. so that's probably the objection. People say, "Oh, it's going to make a mess," but Lots of things make a mess. I mean, all trees drop something. So why not have it drop something that's edible? <laughs> yes. Well, when I lived out in California, when we were, again, sort of elementary school age, they would um, we would do a field trip to the, there were the Miwok 
tribe of Native Americans that oh, right. from that region. And their diet was heavily based on the acorn and acorn mush. So I've gotten to taste it. <laughs> it's very labor intensive. And so I don't know that that's the ticket for <laughs> feeding communities <laughs> nutritious meals, but it was really wonderful to get that experience, to, um, to think about oak trees in a different way as like providing sustenance. Anything else to share with our listeners in this episode? You know, another group that I'd like to chat with that's doing innovative work Yale is one of the leading urban forestry schools in the U.S. Mm-hmm. that I'm aware of. So many of the people in the New York City Parks Department are, are Yale forestry graduates. So in New Haven, Connecticut, there's a group, an urban community forestry group. And it's similar to the one in Baltimore, where it's training local people to replant and to care for trees. And it's a for these groups to be self-sustaining is ideal. So it's there's money, it's creating jobs, it's improving the community. And that's the one in Baltimore and the one in, in New Haven are both doing that. And that's you know very exciting that it's mm-hmm. it helps property value, it makes neighborhoods safer, it gives jobs. I was fortunate to grow up and always be exposed to nature, educated, but many people don't have that. So they don't they don't have the they didn't have that benefit of seeing all the benefits that trees provide and it's like a foreign, you know, it's a foreign element. And so I think there is a movement in the U.S., more awareness. There's more people in cities than ever. So making cities nice places to live for everybody. Mm-hmm. And trees are a big part of that. Yeah. Our, our evolution is closely linked to trees. We, we, we have a, had a, you know, millions of years relationship as mammals with trees. So it's not surprising that there's that affinity once, once they're planted and well cared for. So your previous question about private garden spaces in a city, and so I have experience designing those also, courtyards, patios, roof decks, you name it. Even sometimes it's a sunken area. So the, a design principle for that is to be concise mm-hmm. or concision, that every element ought to count. And sometimes there's requirements of, um, if you see that like rooftop deck, those plants form a silhouette. So in, in, in some cities, there's guidelines, like you can't have a palm tree peeking out, you know, and, <laughs> uh, on top of a corporate building, let's say, mm. or something. And then there's also like load requirements if it's on a roof. So there's, there's special engineered soils for that. So great urban gardens that are, I guess, public too, but particularly private, design is more important than ever because mm-hmm. what is there ought to really count. Yeah. So having, I've done designs where it's like quite a tall, thin planter. So the plant's closer to eye level. It's also, the weather's more extreme when you're in a city. It's hotter or colder, depending on the season. So the plants, that's all part of the design process. And so with good design, it can be incredibly gratifying. And these green spaces can be restorative and successful, but to be concise. And these big, large public parks, they're also concise too. It's not a plant palette. It's not the most diverse plant pal, but mm-hmm. what is there, those trees are thriving and working. And it's like within the maintenance requirements that are available. And, and the plants look appealing almost all year. So yeah, being concise, I think, in an urban area, because there are a lot of demands. Mm-hmm. So to have it appealing and successful, there needs to be uh, some precision. 
Very good. Well, we've reached the end of another episode for this week. So thank you for tuning in. And we certainly hope we shared something in this three-part series that resonated with your area of choice. If we said something that was a misstatement about your area of choice, (laughs) feel free to share that with us or or give us just more resources. We love it. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, We love being pointed in the direction of more information about these all the regions that we love so much. The diversity is what is really, really special. So we will hope that you get a chance to visit a special landscape in your life sometime soon. And thank you again for listening. Thank you. Until next week. Bye-bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden, a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you. So drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details, And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.